Well, happy Mother's Day to you. Uh, mamas, I want to encourage you to get all you can because our day's coming. Our day is our day is coming. If you have your Bibles, please meet me in Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, as you're turning there, it's, I'm reminded of the time um, um, a, a little boy, it was past his bed, bedtime, and he was getting a little cranky, and so his mama, they were downstairs. His mama just said, why don't you go upstairs? It's bedtime. Go to sleep. You're cranky. So he goes upstairs, uh, tears kind of streaming down his face. He gets into the bed. A few moments later, he yells downstairs to his mama, Mama, I'm thirsty. Can I please have some water? To which she quickly responded, No, now go to sleep. Undeterred, a few seconds later, he yells back down, But Mama, I'm really, really thirsty. To which she immediately responded, No, I told you go to sleep. And if you don't go to sleep, you're going to get a spanking. He thought about it for a few seconds, and he yelled back, Mama, on your way up here to spank, you, to spank me, can you please bring some water? <laughs> I love telling that. You know, I couldn't tell that joke in California because the S word spank, but it's good to be in the Bible Belt. <laughs> Mama, I want you to understand we see you. We appreciate you. We applaud you. I know it can be a really thankless job. But we just pause right now and we say happy Mother's Day to you for all the diapers change, for every time you've come home from the marketplace helping out with the kids and all that stuff. We appreciate you. One more time for the mothers. Can we give them, give them a round of applause? I'm dressed up actually because my mother said she'd be watching. Um, <laughs> You know, seriously, I, I went to graduation the other day, hadn't planned on going, uh, and my mom was like, oh, no, you're going. I didn't carry you for nine months not to go to a graduation, and I'm like 49 years old. The power she still wields over my life today, something else. I want to direct your attention to a mother in the scriptures by the name of Hagar, tucked away in Genesis chapter 16, and I want to, I want to look at her, and I want to look at God's goodness to her in the middle of some very trying circumstances that I hope we will all find comforting and encouraging. Pick me up in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Man, this text is a hot mess. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her. Actually, in the Hebrew, it meant that she assaulted her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now, Shur is on the way to Egypt. So here you have this Egyptian woman. She's being mistreated and abused. She's like, I'm out. I'm going to go back home to the one place of comfort and safety. 
And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that you cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Ber Lahoi Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Can I trouble someone for a little bit of water? That'd be, that'd be helpful. Thank you. Um, so on a day like today, naturally, I'm thinking about, uh, about my mother. And my, my mother and my father are from the Northeast. Um, their generation was part of what we would call the Great Migration, where you had many African Americans who left the Jim Crow South and they went to places like up north and out west to to find a better better quality of life. Now you need to understand something. Uh, both of my parents are from the hood, especially my mother. She's from the hood hood. Um, she's from the ghetto, like 25th and Diamond in North Philadelphia. If ever you're on a street named Diamond in Philadelphia, it ain't what you think it is. All right, it is, it is the hood hood. Now, my parents, you need to understand, they were a part of what, what we would call the reverse migration. Uh, the reverse migration after civil rights legislation, you now saw a lot of African Americans leaving large urban centers in the north and out west, coming back down south for more affordable living. Um, and so what that meant for me was um, I wasn't born in the hood. I was raised on a cul-de-sac. So my narrative ain't, Grew up in the projects, had it rough. No, um, I was really soft. I came from a very soft, sheltered environment, um, and I could tell that really bothered my mother. Like my mother, you could just tell she had this angst that her kids are living very sheltered, soft lives. And so, true story, she woke up one day and said, I'm going to fix this. My kids are living very soft, sheltered lives. I'm going to fix this. Now, I'm about eight years old at the time. And my sister next to me is about four years old. And my, mom, my mama's uh, solution to fixing our kind of safe, sheltered life was to literally drop us off on public transportation one day. I'm eight years old. My sister's four-year-old. By the way, public transportation is great. Our family lived in New York City for, for some time. We took public transportation. It's wonderful. But when you're eight years old and your sister is four years old and you've just been rolling in station wagons and all of a sudden I get dropped off on MARTA, uh, which is public transportation, is a bit traumatic. My mama paid the fare and was pretty much like, good luck with that. And we're now surrounded by all these strangers. You know, here we are. I mean, we're the equivalent of the Huxtables. Like, you know, Theo Huxtable. Well, I mean, that was a compliment back then. Now it's a little bit different. But anyways, 
So we're sitting in the back of the bus, me and my sister, and I distinctly remember looking at all these strangers just thinking, this is the end of the world. Like, this is how I go out. Like, me and my sister are hugging and embracing. We're crying one another with one another. It's just awful, man. We're snotting, like, doing the ugly cry. Shoulders bouncing the whole night. And then all of a sudden, I look out some moments later, out the back of the bus, and I see a couple cars behind us, Mama in our station wagon, right? She's so concerned about how soft we are, she's following us, right? Um, and so when we stop, she stops. When we make a turn, she makes a turn. I mean, and I just want to tell you, even though my situation didn't change, knowing that mama was with me in the situation changed everything. Last week, Pastor J.D. started a wonderful series in which we're talking about God's goodness in the middle. And one of the things he was just sharing and saying is that we've got to stop this whole mentality that God's goodness only happens once we come through the trial. God's goodness is not something that all of a sudden shows up when the trial is over, when the health crisis ends, when the surgery ends, when the, when the reconciliation happens, when the wayward child comes back home and, and faith to Jesus. No, no, no. God's goodness isn't just something that happens at the end. God's goodness is actually with us right in the middle of it all. In fact, the anchor text for this series is Psalm 23, and we heard it last week, and it bears repeating. In Psalm 23, David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That is good news. God is with us in the valley. And if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to give you the fine print of Christianity. The fine print of Christianity is not that Jesus Christ kind of uh, incubates us from problems. No, Christians experience problems, but, but what we have is different from what the world has. It's not the absence of, pro of problems, but it is the presence of Jesus in the midst of the problems. He is with us. He's with us in, in, in the surgery room. He's with us in the traumatic experience. He, he is with us. And I understand some of you all, that's exactly where you're at right now. And you're wondering, how can God allow this to happen? And where is God? I want you to understand he's with you right now. In fact, I didn't even say this the first service, but man, the other week, you know, uh, again, I'm just kind of bringing you into this journey. I, I've got one of our sons, he's hashtag adulting and He's going through a very difficult time right now, and some things happened uh, last week, and man, just kind of reached out to us, and, and I remember getting off the phone with him and saying to my wife, he's not going to like our response, but I can't step in and rescue him and fix this right away. He's got to actually feel it. So what my son is feeling in the midst of this trial that he's going through, he's getting angry with me because he wants me to resolve it right now, but I have a bigger view in my Mind than his comfort and happiness. I'm actually after more. I'm after his growth in some of us. That's exactly where it is with God. I want you to come in and fix it right now. And God is like, man, I really want to, but I'm after so much more than your comfort and happiness. Because I need you to hashtag spiritually adult. So where's God? God's with us. Right in the middle of it all, God's with us. So I want to draw you in on this Mother's Day to a, to a single mama in a very dysfunctional home 
And there's trouble in this home. In fact, if you're here today, you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, or maybe you have questions about the, the veracity of Scripture, and, and, and is it really true? Listen, there is so much drama in this home that it has to be true. If it ain't true, you don't write this stuff. And one of the things that we see right away is that Sarai is dealing with infertility. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, verse 1, had borne him no children. Now, Sarai, her name would later on be changed to Sarah. Abram, his name would later on be changed to Abraham. But I just, I just want to pause right here and just kind of acknowledge for some of you women here today on Mother's Day, it, it, it was an act of God for you to just be here because you're reminded that something you're deeply desiring to have kids hasn't happened for some of you. Maybe you got married and it wasn't a conscious thought. Maybe it was just kind of tucked away in your subconscious that you could kind of have kids on your own timetable, and yet here you are years later realizing that's not true and the journey that you're on. I want you to understand that God's with you in this moment, and we, the family of God, are with you as well. I want to encourage you to lean into in the community, that there's people right here in our church who'd love to walk with you in the middle of all this. We don't live in heaven and bore down here, as my grandmother used to say. This life veers off script, and there's pain. We see this right away. So here's Abram and Sarai. They're dealing with infertility which is always devastating. It's even more devastating in that society when it was just kind of this society that says a woman is only valued based on what she could produce. And so for a woman not to produce kids was especially devastating in that society. Sarai now has an idea. Here's what we'll do is um, we'll turn to Hagar. Who's Hagar? Most scholars say that uh, uh, we got to go back to Genesis chapter 12 to figure out who Hagar is because in Genesis 12, uh, Abram and Sarai, they go before Pharaoh in Egypt, and Pharaoh notices um, uh, um, Abram's wife, Sarai, finds her very attractive, and uh, Abram says, well, that's actually my sister, so he's kind of a passive guy, and so Pharaoh takes Sarai, and that's his way of saying thank you to Abram, gifts Hagar to Abram. So I want you to understand that, that Hagar is their servant. Some would say actually their slave. Please notice that Abram and Sarai, they never refer to her by name. They only refer to her uh, by her nationality and her position. Because in their mind, um, she's kind of less than human. She's only valued for what she can produce. And so here's this woman She's kind of treated and viewed as this tool. Sarai says, look, we're dealing with issues of infertility, so Abram, why don't you have relations with her, produce a kid, that kid is ours. Now, on a cultural level, this makes sense because that's how people rolled back then. That's exactly what you did. If Back in that time, all the cultures surrounding Abram and Sarai, if you're dealing with issues of infertility, um, uh, you didn't do in vitro back then, you just kind of took a concubine, you impregnated her, and that child legally was not hers, it was yours. So let's just kind of let's just kind of do it that way. 
Here's the problem. The problem is 10 years before, God had showed up to Abram and Sarai and had made a wonderful promise, and that is, I'm going to provide you with a kid. I'm going to do this, and through you, you're going to have numerous descendants, and that's going to be the nation of Israel, my covenant people. That's how we're going to do this. And so here they are 10 years later, and they're tired of waiting on God, and so we'll just kind of take matters into our own hands and do it our own way. So here we see them making a decision that's outside of the will of God, and what Abram should have done, Abram should have just lovingly said to his wife, honey, I understand, I get it, the hurt, the pain, but this is not what God wants us to do. He should have said, we're not going to do that. I know it makes sense culturally. I, I know it's been over a decade. I understand that, but, but we're going to wait on God. That's what Abram should have done, but because of his passivity, he kind of gives license to their impatience. So now, Hagar is impregnant. I want you to notice, just kind of fast forward with me, verse 12, what God says about this child that Hagar is about to bear. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. You know what he's saying here? The, the, the child in your belly and that child's descendants are going to be a thorn in the flesh of the people of God, Israel. In fact, we are seeing that to this day, the strife, all of the strife that we're seeing in the Middle East, if you just kind of traced it all the way back to the common denominator, all the hell in the Middle East goes back to one decision made out of impatience. And one of the timeless lessons of our text, it teaches us this, that the only thing worse than waiting on God is wishing that you had. And we've all been there, haven't we? Instead of moving at God's timetable, I know better. I, I, I'm just going to kind of move ahead of God here. So one of the things this text is teaching us is there is, there is a cost. There is a cost to impatience. All of us in this room have heard of the name Magic Johnson, the NBA Hall of Famer. Um, Magic Johnson um, was drafted in 1979 by the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, and of course, everybody just kind of looked at him, man, at six foot nine point guard. We've never seen this before. Great things are headed uh, for Magic Johnson. And so everybody and their mothers trying to get Magic to sign and endorse their their their, um, their uh, product. And so here's Converse. Converse shows up and says, hey, $80,000, which was big money back then, 80000 deal. Uh, it, we, we want you to, to, to wear our shoes. Now, uh, th then, then a no-name guy named Phil Knight, CEO of a little no-name fledgling company at the time named Nike, he comes up to Magic and says, Magic, I can't compete with $80,000, but here's what I can do. I can give you a ton of stock. You, you can have stock in our company, and if you're patient, I believe this stock is going to mature, and it's going to make you a very rich man, and Magic's like, uh, no, I'm sorry. I want my $80,000. I want my $80,000 now. Fast forward now. Economists say, had Magic taken that deal that Phil Knight offered him, that just the Nike stock alone would have made him over $5.2 billion today. Now, parenthetically, Magic ain't hurting. But there's a cost to impatience. Some of you understand this right now. I mean, literally, literally, your plight is Hagar's plight in the sense that you know what it's like to not wait on God as it relates to his timetable for how to steward your body sexually. 
So some of you, you know what it's like to be pregnant out of wedlock. Now, let me just say this word of encouragement. God's going to show up to the single unwed mother and say, listen, I've got good plans for that baby. So that baby ain't, ain't the problem. I got good plans. But, but nonetheless, some of you all know the cost that comes with that. Others of you, maybe, maybe you, you know the cost of not being patient in that season as it relates to your schooling, that, that season of sowing. And so maybe you know the impatience of just dropping out of college. And I'm not saying if you don't have a four-year degree, God can't use you. Of course, I'm not saying that. But some of you now, years later, you're having to make up for lost time because you weren't patient in your season of sowing. Others of you, maybe you're like, Maybe you're like this guy I've, I've mentored for, for quite some time. I remember years ago, he had just met this woman. It was kind of a quick courtship. He came to me, and me and kind of a multitude of counselors said, man, it's too soon. We don't think you guys are right for each other. He wouldn't listen to the wisdom that we provided. And so we were just together a couple months ago and just kind of checking in with him, and they're headed for divorce because he wouldn't listen. He wouldn't be patient. On and on we can go. All of us have stories, real-time stories, of the costliness of impatience. The only thing worse than waiting on God is wishing that you had. Now, let me just say this, and I just got to go there. Because some of you are sitting here, man, and I read the whole text to you, and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. And as you're hearing this story, you're like, aha, this is why I'm not a Christian. I mean, we're talking about Abraham and Sarah. The, 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 these are kind of the, the models of what, what faithfulness to God look like. And what do we see? We, 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 we see misogyny. We, 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 we see treating people as being less than the image of God. But might even say, look, there's some racial connotations here. Like, like, if that's how people of faith act, I want nothing to do with God or the Bible. I get what you're saying, but here's the problem. The stories in the Bible are not about elevating the actual human characters as exemplars of what faithful living looks like. That's not it. The stories of the Bible actually reveal to us very morally and spiritually flawed and failed people in need of a Savior. In fact, Tim Keller says this. Will you look at it with me? This is good. Tim Keller says, speaking of our text, look at this text, he says. The text proves to you the Bible is not a book of virtues. It's a book of gospel. It's not a series of stories of moral exemplars. It is a record of God's intervening grace into the lives of people who don't deserve it, who don't seek it, who continually resist it, and who don't even appreciate it after they've been saved by it. Look, what is this teaching us? This is teaching, Keller says, that us, the very best human beings in the history of the world, are moral and spiritual failures. And guess what, friends? That's us. That's us. We are incredibly complicated and nuanced people in which halos don't fit us perfectly, neither do horns. Abraham, hall of faith, Hebrews 11. Passive man who doesn't stand up for what's right. That's all of us. That's all of us. Bold one moment, passive the next. Courageous one moment, flawed the next. So the point of the Bible is not look at Abraham. The point of the Bible is look at God. 
And in our story, God is going to reveal himself to this woman as everything Abraham is not. That is why don't you dare let mere mortals run you out of the church of God. They're not the example. God is. So now we come to our text. Here is Hagar. Her world has been rocked. Treated as a tool. Treated as a machine. She's now impregnated. Her and Sarai fall out. Sarai kicks her out of the house. Abram doesn't stand up and protects her. She's a single mom. She's, she's pregnant with child. I'm imagining probably morning sickness. Here she is, out in the wilderness by herself. It's not like she's catching a flight back to Egypt. It's not like she's driving back to Egypt. She's probably walking. Ancient travel made her very, very vulnerable to the attacks of individuals. She is out here by herself. This is kind of me reading the white spaces of the text, but, but maybe she's just kind of looking around wondering, how, how is this happening to me? I was just minding my business. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm doing as I'm told. Ever been there? Ever been there? Ever had kind of the spiritual honesty to articulate frustration to God where you go, man, I'm not perfect, but how in the world is this trauma in my house? How in the world am I here? And then look what happens, verse 7. In the middle of all this, so she called, excuse me, the angel of the Lord found her. The angel of the Lord found her. The angel of the Lord found her. And who's the angel of the Lord? It's not Gabriel. It's not Michael. It's not an angelic being who is a representative of God. The angel of the Lord, Bible scholars tell us, is a pre-incarnate ex- uh, uh, um, manifestation of Christ. In other words, this is God. It's not someone on behalf of God. This is God. Now, how do I know this? Verse 13, after their conversation, look at how Hagar refers to the angel of the Lord. It says this, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. Hagar is saying, I just encountered not your messenger. I encountered you. How do, we, how do we experience the goodness of God in the middle of the trial, in the middle of the valley? You have to understand first and foremost, we experience the goodness of God because like the angel of the Lord with Hagar, God is pursuing us. He's pursuing us. The story is told of a woman one time who was walking along a beach and kind of off in the distance, she saw a peculiar sight. It was a seagull with its wings covered in a black substance that looked like, like, like motor oil. And she watched as this seagull who was running with all of its strength and trying to take off, but because its wings were weighted down with this black substance, it couldn't. So she had the bright idea. Here's what I'll do. I'll just kind of catch up. I'll pursue this bird. I'll capture this bird. I'll take it somewhere. We can get, get, the, get the oil off of its wings so that now it can be restored to its environment. 
environment. And so the problem is she's pursuing this bird, and this bird is just, it's just not letting her capture it. It's just when, when, when she tries to capture it, she, it, the bird turns left or turns right, just keeps going and going and going. This goes on for about five minutes. The woman is out of breath, and she just kind of mumbles out loud, I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to help you. Friends, we need to understand that God is pursuing us. In fact, you may not like this. One of the things I've learned by experience in my life is that oftentimes God's pursuit of me is through circumstances, some of which I don't like. God is saying, Brian, I'm so committed to you. I'm so committed to your growth. I'm so committed to your development that I'm coming after you in situations you might not like. This is why I alluded the other week to, to, to Jonah. Jonah rebels against God, and what does God do? He doesn't play the role of Abraham and sits back passively. No, he says, I'm coming after you in a storm. I'm coming after you with a fish. God loves us that much that he is willing to violate our comfort to pull us close to him. God is pursuing it. In fact, some of you know what it's like. You weren't thinking about God. You were far from God. You weren't a follower of God. And yet God released into your life individuals who were relentless, who, who were pursuing you, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. When you weren't even trying to hear of Jesus, he, he pursued you. How do I know God's good? As the song says, his goodness is running after. It's running after me. He's pursuing us. How, how do I know God's good? Not just by his pursuit. I know he's good by his presence, by his presence. Again, here is Hagar. Her world has been turned upside down. She's, she's, she's in the middle of nowhere. The angel of the Lord shows up. Again, verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Here it is. You are a God of seeing. Now, this text is originally written in Hebrew. The Hebrew word for God of seeing is El Roy. And no, Gen Xers, this is not a reference to the Jetsons. She names God. Here, this Egyptian, African, single mother is saying, you see me. You, you, you see me. For, for she said, truly here I have seen him who, who looks after me. Th this is amazing. She's a servant in someone's house, treated as a tool. They never refer to her by name. She knows what it's like to not be seen. She says, you see me. Genesis 21, she's again kicked out of the house. Genesis chapter 21, as she's back in the wilderness, hear it now, verse 17, it says, and God heard the voice of the boy, and the, that's Ishmael, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. God sees, God hears, God sees, God hears, God sees, God hears, God sees, God hears. Some of you gone through some very traumatic things. I want you to know God sees and hears. 
some of you, that's where you are right now. I want you to understand one of the lies of the enemy when we're going through is, where's God? That's why you need to become your favorite podcast preacher. Where is God? He's, he sees me. He hears me. He's with me. I mean, we parents, we've all been through this, haven't we? Our, our kids, middle of the night, maybe they're having a nightmare or they're scared of something. Knock on the door, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. What's wrong, kid, 3, 4 years old, I'm scared. What do they want? They want to crawl into bed with us. Why do, why do they want to crawl into bed with us? Because in their childlike mind, if I can feel the presence of mom and dad, everything's good. That's how we need to be. Yes, I'm going through. Yes, I, I, I need to lean into some therapy. Amen. I, I need to lean into some counseling. Amen. I, I, I need to be with friends. Amen. But at the end of the day, make sure you know what it's like to sit with Jesus. Instead of worrying about it and strategizing about it and trying to control it, sit with him. With your Bible open, sit with him. In prayer, you need to experience the presence of God because God has an uncanny habit throughout the scriptures when his people are going through to unveil his presence to them. This is what he does when he tells Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I've seen it who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. David was calmed by the presence of God in life's hard moments. He says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in show, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I can't get away from the omnipresent God. He's there. God's with you. He's with you in your season of unemployment. God's with you. He's with you. How do we experience the goodness of God in the midst of going through his pursuit, his presence, but finally, his providence, his providence. Whenever you come to the passage of of, of Scripture, there are three questions you should always ask as we close. These questions are in sequential order. Number one, what does this text teach me about he? That's God. Number two, I then ask the question, what does this text teach us about we, the covenant people of God? And finally, I then ask, what does this text teach me? What does this text teach me? Number one, when we think of the providence of God, what what, what does this text teach me about God? Again, it teaches me about his providence. And when we talk about the providence of God, we're talking about a God who is so bad. Uh, That's a euphemism for good. A God who is so bad who can take any situation and decision I make in life and still work his glory and our good. Tony Evans says that the providence of God is the hand of God in the glove of time. That God is active and at work in all of the situations and scenarios of our lives. I love it. God shows up and he says to this single mama, He says to her, yes, I know that this baby necessarily isn't part of my perfect will, 
But I got plans for this baby. How do we know? He says to Hagar, here's what I want you to name this child. Name this child born out of less than divine perfect circumstances. Name the child Ishmael. Hear me. Ishmael. Ishmael. E-L ending is directly related to Elohim, which is the name of God. God says to this single mama, put my name on this child. Oh, y'all need to hear that. That's why unashamedly, we are against abortion. Uh, You may have gotten pregnant out of less than perfect situations or scenarios, but that child bears God's name because that child bears God's image. So God is saying, I'm going to take this child who shouldn't have been here in the first place and use him as a key part of my divine redemptive purposes and plans. That's the providence of God. Now, I want to be careful. The providence of God doesn't give us license to sin. But what I want you to understand, there is no decision, no choice that you will ever make that God says, ooh, that's a tough one. And I think that's what Satan does to us. Hey, I'm divorced. God can't use me. Hey, I filed for bankruptcy. God can't use me. Hey, I've been to jail. God can't use me. You know who we're talking about? We're not talking about your best friend. We're talking about a God who said, let there be light. And there was light. We're talking about a God who, who got down in a pit with Daniel and closed the mouth of lions. We're talking about a God who said, Moses, stretch out your staff, open up the Red Sea, and you worried that because you've been through divorce, he can't use you? We're talking about the almighty providential God. and He takes our worst mistakes and says, I'm going to get glory. That's why Joseph would say to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You left me hanging, but here I am second in command of the nation of Egypt. That is the providence of God. God has not given up on you. He is at work in your life right now. Secondly, what does this teach teach me about? Listen, listen. Some of y'all... This, is, this doesn't sound like a big deal. It's a big deal to me. I am an African-American. And sometimes when I read the scriptures, I just, for the longest, I just assumed we weren't a part of God's plan. But then I come to Genesis 16, and I see Hagar, who's described as the Egyptian. Now, I went to Bible college, so I didn't take geography. But the last time I checked, Egypt is in Africa. God has promised in Genesis chapter 12, he says to Abram, I'm going to bless you. You're going to have all these people, and through your seed, the world will be blessed, which means this, my heart is for the world. Now four chapters later in Genesis 16, God says, I'm going to actually bring the nations to your house in the form of an African woman. And now he says to this African woman in so many ways, you got a half Jew, half African baby in your belly that is going to be a part of my redemptive plans. That blesses me as a black man because we're in here. God is using the nations as part of his plan. This is why the great hope of the church is made up of Jew and Gentile, former aliens and strangers bonded together because of the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
That's what it teaches us about we. But thirdly and finally, what does it teach me about me? That, Brian, I don't care what you're going through. God is at work. God is at work. The providence of God means this for you, Brian. There's no such thing as an accident or a coincidence, only providence. God is at work. You know, I was, I was in India as we close. I was in India some years ago. I think it was 2014, work, working with a bunch of, uh, with, with over 800 church planters. I was, I was there. And, and on a break, they, they, they took me to this factory where they manufacture these uh, saris. You know, if you've ever been to uh, a wedding uh, with one of our beautiful Indian brothers and sisters, you, you, you've seen the sari. And I actually saw them manufacture and, and, and produce these beautiful, bright uh, saris with wonderful designs on them. And, 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 and I walked into this, this room. It was a very bland, mundane room. And, and it was two people working on it. Uh, it was a father and a son. And the father was, was, was elevated, and, and he was behind a platform with some threads in his hand. And on the other side of the partition was his son seated on the floor in the lotus position. And, and, and the father, in a very gentle way, would just kind of give an instruction, and I'd watch the son just kind of at his father's kind of command move the shuttle back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Now, the son couldn't see what the father was doing. He just kind of heard what the father was saying and would move the shuttle back and forth. Very mundane, boring kind of a way. And he, he did this for hours. And I just remember thinking to myself, watching it for the few moments I was there, I mean, that, just, that just sounds purposeless. That sounds mundane. But what kept the son hanging in there is he knew on the other side of the partition, the father had a design in his mind. And the father was working the design and allowing the son to be an instrument in what he was producing. And I look at my own life and I say, man, how many times in my own life do I just go through things? And I'm just going, and this seems so random. It, it seems so mundane. At, at times, this, this seems so crushing. And yet, good theology says, when I think of the providence of God, on the other side of the partition of time is a good God who has a design in mind. And he's using it all. Romans 8, 28, for all things work together. For good, those that love God and are called according to the purpose. I don't trivialize your pain. I'm just saying God's there. And what the enemy meant for evil, God's going to work for good. That's his goodness. He's right there. Now, I, I got to be careful how I say this. Verse 9 God actually says to Hagar, look, I know you're headed to Egypt because Egypt's comfortable. I actually need you to go back to what's hard. That verse is not meant to say go back to abuse. It's not what that verse is teaching. In fact, if you're being abused, you need to leave. Get help. Get protection. But in my life, how quick am I to jump out of certain situations? Because I want comfortable, I want familiar, I want easy. When the truth of the matter is, life's sweetest moments are tied oftentimes to life's hardest moments. 
I, I, I enjoy cake. I enjoy it too much. Cake is made up of stuff like egg and butter and sugar and flour. We don't eat that stuff individually. But we mix it together and we submit it to prolonged heat. And that prolonged heat is necessary to produce the good tasting product. God is telling us, don't be so quick to jump out of the oven. I'm going to meet you right there. But I'm working in the midst of it all. My providence is active. God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus, who is the true and better Ishmael. Wow. Thank you, Jesus, that like Ishmael, you were born under suspicious circumstances to what we might call a single mama named Mary. Thank you, Jesus, the true and better Ishmael, that like Ishmael, you were rejected. That's why John would say of you, Jesus, you came unto your own, and your own received you not. Thank you, Jesus. You are the true and better Ishmael, because like Ishmael, your father abandoned you. That's why on the cross you said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Thank you, Jesus. You are the true and better Ishmael, because as Ishmael's name means God has, has heard my affliction, Jesus, you are the suffering servant who on the cross experienced affliction and suffering as our sins were laid on your shoulders. And yet you went through all of this that we might be redeemed, drawn into your presence, no longer as strangers and aliens, but as adopted sons and daughters. God, we receive that word today in Jesus' name. Amen.